Who am I? I am a sentient human being. <laughs> um, and I have been teaching at Portland State for about 18 years. So in that time, I became an accidental academic um, because I love, I, I love teaching as a informal setter, setting, you know, as an informal educator. But I also love teaching in a f formal setting, which is something I didn't know about myself. And so I ended up getting my doctorate in education because I love the power of education. Initially, that was my focus as a violence prevention strategy, but I've gotten more and more interested in education as a social change phenomenon. And so I did my dissertation on storytelling as a mechanism to shift consciousness around um, issues of justice and um, specifically looking at love as a factor that is something that comes up in the process of sharing story and turning objects into subjects and engaging people in people's, the tapestry of people's lives and stories and experiences. How do you learn your enemy's story and humanize them so that they no longer are an enemy but someone who is misunderstood? Um, stories provide the sort of litmus test of acceptability and as human beings we all want to be loved, we all want to be valued, and the stories that we hear, especially the stories that are held up and heralded as successful people or people who are loved or people who are valued, we want to achieve the same success. Um, the, the way that we tell stories, the types of stories that we tell have a huge impact on our sense of what's possible for ourselves in the world. One of the things that's interesting is that in the literature, again, that I've explored around storytelling, there's some really interesting parameters that have been set that I'm not sure that I agree with, but the idea that story is only what emanates forth organically and it has to be spoken in order for it to be truly a story. I like the notion of that. It's romantic and it's, it's like pure, you know, because story changes and story, um, when it's directed towards a purpose, it has a different um, quality to it. So this idea of organic, spoken, oral tradition is really noble. The dominant narrative of beliefs that are reified and, um, and put forth by the media and by us as a result of those stories. And then um, stories of resistance, resistance stories where suddenly you see noteworthy people who are swimming against that tide of dominant discourse. And then you see um, transformational stories where people have succeeded in um, bucking whatever trend or phenomenon or belief is prevalent in the stock stories. And then you see stories of action where uh, people are invited into a trend that actually feeds back into the stock story. So it's a cyclical model um, where the you can see the dominant narrative shifting as a result of this cycle of story. Access to um, media creation has uh, been instrumental in creating, I mean in Portland we kind of you know have this whole subculture that doesn't feel like subculture because it's so prominent you know but like other places that I've lived and visited don't have that same counterculture. I mean, everyone's just shopping at strip malls and eating Costco food and just living this very prescribed kind of um, reality. They're all on antidepressants. They're all, you know, just like living like a life out of a box instead of an authentic experience. And I think a lot of that has to do with just following the instructions that they've been given instead of feeling um, like they are creators of their own narratives. And, um, 
which led me to study a lot about Stanley Milgram did these obedience studies looking at how we can be so easily persuaded to harm others when authority is pushing us in that direction which gets back to the media's influence if the media is telling us something do we take that as authority um, so that's a really interesting piece um, also looking at you know gender construction it's a similar phenomenon around the um, story of beauty as being a necessary precursor to acceptability for women in particular. Men, Malcolm Gladwell did some interesting studies around height as a necessary indicator of um, legitimacy. He found that um, um, men are paid roughly $10,000 more per year as income based on each inch of height that they have. And as I'm sure you've discovered in your own inquiries, um, women have far more opportunities available to them that they fit into a standard idea of beauty. And so, um, so again, those are all stories that are generated, that there's a, there's a measure that we all have to meet in order to be acceptable. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a bit more of a child's play than the propaganda that looks at war, but it's the same sort of structure that creates stories that accept some and discredit others on very, very superficial terms. The uh, media industry like took on the task of actually using all of our human weaknesses as a mechanism to sell us stuff. And so consumerism has really driven the show since probably the 1970s, but the 1960s. There was a study in, um, by, there was a national commission that was created in uh, 1967 to evaluate like how the media influenced people. And if you think about what media was in 1967, it was a very unobtrusive type of media compared to how it is now. Not to mention personalized and you know media directed towards our own weaknesses and um, inclinations. So in 1967, this National Commission determined that media, in this case television, they were looking at television, had a profound influence on how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive our place in the world. Um, and the world, you know. A uh, Trappist Abbey um, had a retreat center and a rabbi came to do a retreat at this Trappist Abbey. And as he was leaving this Abbey, this, I guess it was a Trappist Abbey, it was a monastery, something anyway, so the monks were all very at odds. The income had gone down and the things that they'd been doing to maintain it. So there was a lot of contention and conflict in this um, group of um, monks. And um, the rabbi had this annual retreat that he did every year. And as he was leaving, he sat with the monks and they said, do you have any wisdom for us? We are just at complete loggerheads on what to do. And we're about to lose the, the land. And he said, well, I can tell you one thing. The Messiah is among you. And that's all he said, and he left. And all of a sudden, the, the monks started wondering, well, did he mean me? Or did he mean him, the asshole? Or, you know, like, wait a second. And they all started to treat themselves and each other with a regard that they hadn't previously had. And in the process of doing so, the atmosphere of the Abbey uh, improved so dramatically that tourists came back and people were, you know, coming to be part of that community and do retreats and participate in whatever their offerings were. And so suddenly there was harmony among 
the men and there was this increased you know livelihood that happened as a result of the harmony among the men and um, you know at some point they realized what the rabbi had done that all humans are intrinsically worthy regardless of what kind of asshat they might be <laughs>